David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Dear listeners, this podcast episode contains a few moments of sound interference. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause and hope you still enjoy the talk. Tonight we're going to talk about the... In a way, in a way, part of it is a continuation of what we spoke about last week, but it's only one level of continuation. So I will, at some point, briefly make reference to some of the concepts we discussed last week, which were very, very esoteric. Very esoteric and spiritual and intellectual and all of those things. And I appreciate that and I know that it's not uh, everyone that is going to be able to digest them easily. Uh, but tonight we're talking about a bit more down-to-earth stuff and stuff that has, uh, if we can understand some of the things we talk about, then it gives us possibly an even greater understanding into today's Jewish world in a number of ways, because what happened was, I don't know if you heard about it, but there was this thing called the 18th century. And in the 18th century, lots of things got churned up. And a lot of stuff came up, and really, our world today, if you want to understand it, all of the major movements and factions and groups and directions within the Jewish world really have their genesis in the 18th century. That is even true, even, I don't know, some of you are seeing going, oh, what about this, what about that? But that is even true of, to some extent, Zionism as well. But certainly in an ideological and intellectual and spiritual framework, the 18th century really gives us the genesis of what we're looking at in the Jewish world today. And naturally, one of the big and most fascinating uh, phenomena of the Jewish world today is the Hasidic world and Hasidism in general. And so the first thing I want us to understand before we plunge into the 18th century, we plunge out of the 18th century like a, a hot bath in a cold pool. What I want us to understand is that when we talk about Hasidism, there seems to be a, a significant difference between that world today and that world of then. It is a completely, it's a gross misunderstanding to say that because these guys are wandering around dressed and looking like an 18th century Polish porritz, that there's some kind of Jewish Amish that are kind of clinging on to some older form of existence. This is very, very far from the truth. The fundamental difference is that today, when we think of the Hasidic world in general, we think of a very conservative world, but in fact, in its origins, in the 18th century, Hasidism was deeply radical. It was a radical movement. And it was so radical that it caused tremendous widespread outcry and splittings right around the Jewish world. But it effected a transformation that has inalterably changed the Jewish world 
even amongst groups that would not consider themselves Hasidim or part of the Hasidic movement or part of the Hasidic world have been affected by this, this revolution. And as I hope also put a little bit of context that we might see that it even presciently predates the major turns in world thinking in some ways. This is only just becoming, being begun to be explored. But whereas in philosophy I talked about how Jews are always reacting to influences and ideas, in the 18th century we're originating ideas that the world is still reacting to. So I'm just laying that down as a preface. It's a very, very important topic. And if we want to understand Hasidism, we want to understand today's Jewish world, we need to realize that differential. Perhaps we'll be able to answer the question as to how it was that the Hasidic movement became this bastion of ultra-Orthodox conservatism, away from kind of its more radical roots. And in doing that, we would need to make the distinction really between what we might call cultural Hasidism versus ideological Hasidism. I meet many people in my travels who would consider themselves Hasidim who have very different outlooks from other people who consider themselves Hasidim. This is a very, very complex world and we can only understand it by going back to its origin. So I'm going to take us, I know it's talk on Hasidism generally, but we're going to plunge right now back into the 18th century. Yeah, because on this we understand the 18th century a little bit. Some of you have heard me talk about the 18th century before. You know that I've basically lived there for many years. And if we want to understand this at all, we need to just be aware of what that world is. What is that world? What's going on in the 18th century? In brevitas, because we only have a couple of minutes. A lot. When we open the 18th century even, we can see a lot's happening. I need to be very careful, I know, I can get distracted, I can go off, and we can talk about it a lot. So I'm just going to give you one historical picture. You know that history is not this great big monolithic entity, some big globobulous academic study called history. There's a thing called historiography. In other words, how do we know the things that we know, and why do we think such things about them? And there are theories of history. So I'm going to give you probably the most uh, signed up to theory about the origins of Hasidism within academia, not because I am prioritizing that theory, but because I think it's as good and effective a picture and a doorway into the 18th century as we could find. And that is a theory about the origins of Hasidism that is kind of known uh, as, and it's not often referred to as this, but this is basically what it is. It's the vacuum theory. A vacuum theory about the origins of Hasidism. That Hasidism somehow arose because a vacuum had been created in Jewish spiritual discourse and in Jewish spiritual leadership and direction. And it's worth exploring that for a few minutes to understand what that means because even if it's an adequate explanation or not, it's worth us being aware of it and it allows us to talk about the things going on. A vacuum of what? What was going on? Well, the first thing you would need to know if you wanted to throw your consciousness back into the early 18th century and to understand its ideological and spiritual trends 
is you would need to know a couple of things about what has just happened. It would be like saying to someone in 300 years time, put yourself back into the middle of the 20th century. What's the Jewish world like? And you would say to them, listen, you, you open up in 1950, you have to realize that there's a couple of things that have just happened. Similarly, with the early 1700s, what has just happened? Lots. But two major influential events slash movements. The first thing you'd have to realize if we're talking about Europe, and really this whole picture of the rise of Hasidism is in Europe. It's just one of the clear things about Jewish history, that Hasidism was not, never was, and probably never could have been a Sephardic or Oriental movement. It's very European in some ways. And Europe has, like the rest of the Jewish world, just gone under some pretty horrendous things. One is, is that in the middle of the 17th century... Sorry? The expulsion. No, no, no. The expulsion happened, the expulsion happened at the end of the 15th, and that's from Spain. In the middle of the 17th century, in around about 1648, 1649, there were the most... In, in, a, in a part of the Jewish world, by the way, that had never really had it easy, but had never really seen any significant troubles, Eastern Europe. Remember that Jews have been moving into Poland and into uh, Belarus, what's today Belarus, and the Ukraine, and that whole pale of settlement in Russia... They've only really been moving in there the last two, three hundred years in significant numbers. And we're just starting to develop that, what we now call the shtetl culture. And you have hundreds of thousands, if not possibly even millions of Jews living right across that area in various forms of existence. Some of them, some of them in larger towns holding almost a middle class type existence. But many, many, many living in small villages and towns and you hold, you know, heavier picture and schlepping the cow and all the rest of it and you know digging up turnips and all of that all right and going to market and that existence has been going on for a couple but no and you know there's the non-jews over there with their big fort and their big cathedral and all of that remember we are just emerging even in central europe we are only just emerging now from the feudal system Western Europe has left it behind a little while ago, but Central Europe's emerging. Eastern Europe has not quite yet emerged from that, but it still feels it. And of course, the overwhelming influence of the church. So the nobility is still strong in these places. In Poland, Lithuania, Romania, Hungary, all of the places that we're going to be talking about. And in the middle of the 17th century, which we can't go into now, it is a fascinating and, and difficult topic, were the, what we now call the Chmielnitsky massacres. And they were enormous. They wiped out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jewish deaths. Something like 100,000 Jews died. It was the biggest, biggest series of pogroms and anti-Semitic massacres prior to the Holocaust. It was, it was comparable to the horrendous uh, massacres that happened in the Rhineland at the end of the 11th century as part of the First Crusade, which, interesting enough, we're going to be talking about tomorrow night. But 
in terms of numbers, these numbers were far, far greater than that. And that left a great devastation, as you can imagine, a demoralization and a de devastation right across European Jewry. The second thing that has just happened, which happened a little bit later in the 1660s, was, of course, Shabbat and the Sabbatean events. Now, some of us are going to sit here thinking, ah, Sabbateanism, a bunch of clowns, right? I don't have time, but put your hand up if you don't know what I'm talking about. Good, 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 good. Massive, massive, massive messianic movement with a dude called Shabtai Tzvi at the head inflamed the entire Jewish world between about 1664 and 1666. And eventually, when it came down to this is the moment, because every Messiah has a <coughs> this is the moment, he converted to Islam. <laughs> when we think about that, so everybody in this room think, ah, people who believed in Shabbat Tzvi, what a bunch of clowns. But at the end of the day, I guarantee you, if we were there, 60 to 70 percent of this audience would be swept up in that movement. It was massive, right across the Jewish world. So when Shabbat Tzvi apostatized himself, no, you might say. They, they said, convert or we'll kill you. That's right. But nevertheless, you know, if you're the Messiah, be serious. <laughs> That's a whole other subject, and you know you can drag me there. But that devastation was a tremendous moral devastation. It wasn't like the guy died and didn't fulfill. It wasn't like, you know, he got killed as a martyr. He converted to another religion. It's not supposed to happen. Amazingly, amazingly, his great prophet and scribe, Nathan of Gaza, went on to justify that conversion based on Lurianic Kabbalah that we looked a little bit at last week. How the soul of the Messiah has to descend into the underworld in order to grasp the last of the sparks to raise them. And they can only be found in Ishmael, they can only be found in Islam, and that's why I had to do it. What you're watching is really, he's doing, the right, he's doing a religious act by converting to Islam, and he's going to pursue all of that. What it meant was this. The thing is, we've never had a false messiah whose followers didn't believe at some point that he or she was coming back. Every messiah we've had, we've had, they die, the followers go, no, he's coming back. And few more so, well, I'd say a few more so, but they're all like that. Obviously, the big one is you-know-who. But also, Shabtai Tzvi, people were expecting him to come back. For the next half a century, all of the rabbis of Europe were on Shabtai watch. When's he going to pop up? Who's going to claim now that they're a reincarnation of him, or he's come back and whatever? So any new movement that came up came under tremendous suspicion. But it caused a demoralization of the Jewish world. At the same time, at the same time, and there's this thing also, you may have heard about it, right? Because I, I did speak about this briefly last week and the week before. There's this thing that happens in the 17th century called the Enlightenment. 
and suddenly people's focus is really westward. Now I'm not saying that a turnip picking, cow milking Jewish peasant in the shtetl in Fanusht is going to have heard about Newton. But energies and foci were shifting westward. <coughs> And not even in an intellectual sense, specifically in terms of the new learning, but even rabbinically. We also have to understand what this world was. We have not yet arrived at what the world that we all know. We have, there, are, there is no such thing still, at the beginning of the 18th century, there's really no such thing as a secular Jew. There isn't. Spinoza tried it in the 17th century. He was like the first person to try. I'm going to be a secular person. No one even knew what that meant. If you didn't belong to a community, you were nothing. And that was the story right throughout the Middle Ages. People read history books and they go, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you wouldn't have had a choice. That was, your, that was who you were. That was your identity. Your clan, your family your father's profession, who you were, that was your identity in that world in ways that they didn't even realize that. And there'll be things about our world, the future historians will say they didn't even realize that, like they were living like that. But that was it. You couldn't say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to, um, I don't think I'm going to be an observant Jew anymore. I think I'm going to go and, you know, get a job as an accountant in the city. I'll just get a place, hang out. That, that, that just didn't happen. The only way out of the Jewish community was into the church. You didn't survive otherwise. Now, in fact, the authorities of any country didn't even recognize you as an individual, except as a Jew, part of a particular community. <coughs> Within that community, before, I mean, apart from that, maybe, 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 occasionally a few boys were allowed to go and study medicine because Jews made good doctors. But apart from that, if you were inside a community like that, what was your scope? Where were you going to go? What if you were brilliant? What if you were talented? What if you had ambition? There's only one direction. And I constantly make this metaphor, and it's true. It's a terrible metaphor. Or analogy, really. But it's true. It's like the slums in Brazil. If you're born in the favela in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, what's the only way that you are going to be able to climb out of that and make a name for yourself? <laughs> Football! <laughs> if you can make a name for yourself, even playing in the slums, and then eventually you get to join a club, blah, 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 by the time you're 20, you could be playing for Brazil, being an international superstar, earning millions. It's the only way out. You can imagine what the schools are like in those slums. You're hardly going to get a high-grade education and get to university and so on. So that's the way to do it. In the shtetl, everybody was eking out that existence, but there was one area where if you excelled, you could shoot right to the top, however lowly your origins. And that, of course, was... Not football. <laughs> it was, of course, Torah. Torah. And as I constantly say, if you throw a stone in the 18th century, it will land on a genius, or a machlokas, or a dispute. If you rise, if you, are, if you are very, very clever, so there was a whole hierarchy. 
If you're the most brilliant kid in your family, you'll be sent to that particular place to learn by another teacher. If you're more bri too brilliant for him, you'll be sent further, further, further up the intellectual food chain. Eventually, you'll come to the attention of great rabbis and scholars themselves and they'll hothouse you and you'll go further. Then eventually you will be offered a rabbinic appointment, which might come with together with marrying the daughter of another great rabbi or maybe the wealthiest guy in town, you'll get a rabbinic appointment. Now, depending on the rabbinic appointments, that's how big you are going to become. It's different being the, the rabbi of Schnippischnock to being the rabbi of Prague or the rabbi of Hamburg or the big coveted position that everyone wanted in the middle of this, from the middle of the 17th century, of course, was the chief rabbi of Amsterdam because that would be like being the chief rabbi of New York. You can already see that even within the rabbinic world, there is a cultural shift westward. Apart from the fact that leadership itself was seen as a kind of, yes, it was a meritocracy, but it was a kind of intellectual and knowledge-based elitism that not everybody was going to be able to partake in. By this time, with the confluence of all of these events, there is in fact created amongst these thousands of small Jewish communities right throughout Europe, Eastern Europe, a kind of vacuum. A vacuum of leadership. A leadership that was not necessarily in touch with their concerns. A leadership that didn't inspire them. A leadership that didn't really uh, connect with the basic spiritual thirst of ordinary people. Not talking about their physical needs, that was a whole other level. But the spiritual thirst that people had. Because at the end of the day, I didn't ask for this. What is this? It would actually be a lot simpler if either I hadn't been born or if I was a goy. What's the meaning of being a Jew in the world? What, we've been already in exile for 1,700 years. And we're not really seeing any end to this cycle. And I've got to put up, I've got to tell you, as a Jew in the shtetl, I've got to put up with a lot of crap. It's not just my mother-in-law or my big fat yenter of a wife. I've got issues with God. I don't even know what he wants from me. Now, this level of alienation created some pretty strange effects. Uh, I just want to say one thing on that last point, because it's, it's, I, I just want to bring people into a consciousness of that. This is not like today. We can't access that consciousness today. Why can we not access that consciousness today? Not just because we live in comfortable homes in Caulfield or whatever. Why are we not? Why is no one today able to access that consciousness? No one in the Jewish world. Okay, since you're all volunteering answers, I'll give one. <coughs> it wasn't rhetorical. It was a question I put out there. But I'll save us the discussion. They didn't know any better, which is an excellent answer, but it's not where I'm going. Because they knew, they knew a lot better than we do about some things, and we know 
a lot less than they do about other things. Developments in the world of science and so on, is, which is what you might be referring to. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but it, uh, knowing things is not what... Knowing things intellectually is not going to affect... In fact, if anything, it's going to exacerbate. Or not knowing things. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Being able to change your economic status and social... Well, that's one, th that's one thing which I think links in with what you were saying. The, 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 the ability to actually escape that by your own volition. But that revolution hasn't happened. I'm talking about something else. We cannot access the consciousness of people who lived before around about... Certainly, when I look around this room, most of us cannot access the consciousness of what it was like to be a Jew in the world prior to 1948. But even prior to 1948, even if we go second about 1920, the idea that the Jews would have their own homeland was a dream, but it wasn't a ridiculous idea. There was already Yeshuv in the land, there was a Balfour Declaration, nations were doing different political maneuvers. It was possible. But in the 18th century, it was completely out of anyone's vision. That's a level of consciousness we can't access. Today, however thing, difficult things get for us spiritually, why are we still in exile? What's really going on? We have seen in our generation, with our own eyes, the fulfillment of the prophecy to the Jewish people by God that we will return to the land at regular intervals. Some more regular than others. So we have Israel culturally, politically, and spiritually. But in the 18th century, no. So you've got this vacuum. Now into this vacuum, I've spent half an hour on the vacuum, we're gonna move on. Into this particular picture, but we need to understand what were the factors. Oh, and right throughout the 18th century, the massacres are continuing with the whole breakup of the Polish-Lithuanian Empire and all of the different countries that were a mess and uprisings and so on. The Heidemach massacres went right throughout the 18th century and created this whole level of instability within Jewish communities everywhere. Horrendous massacres, once again, not going into it just now. But into this vacuum walks a very, very unique individual. I'm going to talk about this individual a bit later. I want to talk, first of all, about the transformation that this person effected. This person is regarded as the founder of Hasidism. Hasidism is a radical, transformative movement that affects a change in consciousness of the Jewish world. Before I write this person's name on the board, which you all know, I'm going to just say one thing also that's happening. Because I talked about all the difficult circumstances. But there is one thing that has been spreading. There's one thing that has been spreading. Slowly and bit by bit. And that is the very, very unique but remarkable <coughs> changes in spiritual consciousness and in our understanding of God in a more mystical way that had emerged from Sput of the 16th century. The whole Lurianic shift that I spoke about last week. Bit by bit, those ideas are disseminating. 
Learning Kabbalah is still a very private affair for many individuals, but it is disseminating. And there are itinerant mystics who are wandering around amongst these places and are sharing their own particular views with people even after the Sabbatean events, where it became dangerous to be a mystic, and even dangerous to say you'd studied Kabbalah, because people associated that with, with all sorts of madnesses and false messiahs and all sorts of, you know, they thought that, you know, and it didn't bring them any favors from anyone outside the Jewish community. But there were itinerant mystics. But into this particular vacuum, of the early, the first half of the 18th century in Eastern Europe walks Israel ben Eliezer known as the Baal Shem Tov. Now I want to talk I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the Baal Shem Tov's uh, historical persona but I think it's actually useful at this stage to actually talk about, just in broad terms, the revolution that he affected. Because if I go into the history, you may not come out of it. Now that we have established this context, I want to talk about what the Baal Shem Tov did in terms of shifting that consciousness. And then I'll talk about the historical circumstances of him and the movement. But, very briefly, the Baal Shem Tov is... He's born in 1698 or 1700, let's call it 1698, right at the end of the 17th century. But until around 1736, he is in obscura. People don't realize that he's the Baal Shem Tov. He reveals himself in the late 1730s and then eventually settles in the town of Medzibos, which today is in the Ukraine. <coughs> he spent years with his wife, years, in the Carpathian Mountains, kind of on the border, you know, the Carpathian Mountains runs on the border of Poland, Romania, Hungary, all that kind of area. And I can tell you that even today, that even today, in the 21st century, the Carpathian Mountains are a complete boch. Imagine what they were like in the 18th century. I mean, the people that he was encountering as he's becoming a faith healer and meditating in the woods and developing his spiritual powers and revealing them only in certain circumstances, the people that he was interacting with were not these geniuses sitting at the University of Berlin. I can tell you that. But he gained a tremendous reputation. And so basically anyone who's ever read anything about this, Balshentov will know that he had to have been, he had to have been one of the most charismatic people that ever walked. Basically everybody who met him had their life completely transformed within the first five minutes. He left an indelible impression on every, he never wrote anything down of course, none of these dudes do, but he left this phenomenal impression and started this movement that is still changing the world today. What did the Baal Shem Tov do? So I want to pick three features of what the original Hasidic movement was trying to introduce and change. There are more, we'll, there's another half a dozen or so I can discuss at the end, but I want to talk now about what I've isolated as the three main ones. When Hasidism comes up at those dinner parties, you need to know what are the three essential points 
of Hasidism and what was introduced there. So the first thing really, and many scholars have poured over Hasidism to try and work out how can we define it, what can we say is its essential point, what's its main thing. If we had to pick of the three, and I'm isolating three is difficult, but of those three, the first one I would say, which really encompasses, almost encompasses the others, What I'm about to do is not to give over some pithy or homiletical message about Hasidism. I'm not here to sell it to you. I'm here to talk about it. Everybody follow? So I don't want anyone sitting here going, oh, here's the moment I'm going to get inspired. Just hold on. <laughs> this is not... If we to identify a concept that really the Baal Shem Tov is transmitting in this phenomenon it is the concept of dvekut now the meaning of the word dvekut sticking is a bit uh, yeah you're absolutely right but just uh, sticking is a bit inelegant you're absolutely right most people talk about like cleaving yeah although cleaving is an interesting word because it's has two entirely opposite meanings, cleave and cleave, yeah? But cleaving or sticking to. You'll see in a moment why sticking is a bit difficult for me to go with at the moment, but you're absolutely right. It is from devic, from the root devic, to cleave to something, to hold on to it, to not let it go. And what is it that we are cleaving, that the Baal Shem Tov wants us to cleave to? What is it that we are cleaving to individually and collectively? God. Godliness. What we understood from the Ari, and there are various connections that we can make, if uh, this lecture was 50 hours long, we would make them, between the way that Kabbalistic concepts that emerged from Tzvat evolved into this existential shift about actually individual consciousness, but it is the realization that God is not up there in some reified old man on a throne looking down on us kind of way. God, it is true, created the world and God surrounds the world, encompasses the world, but God is also imminent in the world. God is here. And I can have an experience of God at every single moment of my conscious life. It involves an extreme understanding of a concept I spoke about two weeks ago in the lecture on philosophy, an extreme understanding of the concept of hashgacha pratit, of particular providence. Every single thing that happens, not only is every single, single thing I see a manifestation of the divine, but everything that happens, happens because it's divinely ordained. When a leaf falls by itself in the middle of a forest and no one sees it, that's divine providence. 
And everything that happens to me and everything that happens in the world is divinely ordained because godliness is revealed everywhere. So every moment, as well as every thing, as well as every place, has the potential to reveal the divine if I see it. This might seem like a nice idea to us now, but in the early 18th century it was radical. Most people still had the notion of God up there somewhere as some big father figure looking down on us making sure we didn't do you know, naughty things when the lights are off. But God is everywhere. Obviously we could talk about Tveikur a lot more, but I want to just lay these three things, when we combine them together we can understand what this transformation is. The second, probably most significant idea that the Baal Shem Tov introduces is this. In a world <coughs> which has for a long time emphasized the importance of knowing once again, I come back to that shift that Kreskas had made between knowing and love. But if the world of Jewish spirituality has emphasized for a long time the value, importance, significance of Torah learning and of intellectual attainments, it had become, over time, developed this concept that scholars called Rabbinism or Talmudism, where in fact your spiritual progress was measured by how much Talmud you knew, how much you had learnt, how much you could recite. In some parts of the Jewish world this is even still the case. And if because, because the only people that were valued in society really, or not valued, everyone was valued, but the only people that had huge status were either people that had lots of cash or people that had lots of Torah, and Torah was available to everyone, Therefore, on the surface, it's a meritocracy. And if you want to do it. But that left a lot of people alienated. Imagine if you were being told by your rabbinic leadership, you have to do things, but you've got no status because you don't know enough. All right? And we're the only ones that know enough, so we're the only ones really that can control your life and tell you what to do. And not only that, not only in Talmudic or Halachic or legalistic senses, but even as Kabbalists. The whole redemption of the world is going to happen when some Kabbalist does some fancy trick and boom, the end will come and the Messiah will come. The Baal Shem Tov realized and transmitted the idea that there is, however, one major area of spirituality where all people are equal, regardless of their intellectual attainments. I'm not talking about the soul. Everyone has a pure soul. It's not what I'm referring to. Something that we can do that is equal for everybody, regardless of how clever or how bright you are or how much money you have. And what's that? Prayer. Prayer. Not everyone can give tzedakah. Prayer. Everybody can pray. You might not even have enough money to perform a mitzvah. You may not have enough money to buy tzitzis. 
or in Lulav, or in Itro. You might have even had your tongue cut out, God forbid. But you can pray. Everybody can pray. Prayer, prayer is a powerful spiritual device given to humanity by which to connect with the divine. This is going to have outcomes. This is going to have consequences, this idea. The early Hasidic movement tended to prioritize prayer over study. It doesn't mean it devalued study, as many people thought it meant. It doesn't mean they devalued study. It doesn't mean that the Hasidic world did not produce great scholars. But it prioritized the notion of the service of the heart. God doesn't, God likes the mind. Yeah, Maimonides, that's, you know, he's got his mind, he brings it to God. God likes the mind, but Rahmana Libabai in the Aramaic of the Zohar. God wants the heart. And prayer is a service of the heart. Because if you're not jumping into your heart and transforming it and pouring out from it towards God, then you're not praying the way the Hasidim understood prayer. Prayer comes deep from the heart and shoots to the highest levels way above intellect. And on that level, everyone is equal. You know the famous story, the boy who comes into shul on Yom Kippur, he doesn't know any of the prayers or anything like that, so he whistles. And the Baal Shem Tov, who's leading the service, turns around and says, that boy's whistle is the one that broke the decree. Everybody else's prayers were trying, but that broke it. Something that comes from the heart. So, there's a huge emphasis placed on prayer. Ah! What if I'm, you know a big scholar and I'm pretty proud of myself and I think I'm pretty holy and I know all the Talmud and I know all the Kabbalistic books and when I pray heavens move so as part of that whole idea Hasidism tended but particularly for the scholars the con to, to, to emphasize the concept of bitul, the concept of self-annulment self-annulment by the way of course is an idea within the Hasidic movement that has tremendous parallels with similar ideas in Eastern spiritual systems. You didn't need to have tell your turnip slipping peasant in the shtetl to feel bitul. He already felt annulled. But for the scholars, this was important. And if there is a third thing that we could identify, these three things, it's hard to separate. I think they're the main things. If there's one thing, one third thing, it is this, that the Baal Shem Tov introduced to Jewish spiritual consciousness, it is the concept of joy, the concept of simcha. To approach life, to approach spiritual discourse, to approach prayer, to approach commandments, to approach everything in this existence that you find yourself in, in which the divine is imminent, and which you can develop a relationship, a personal relationship with the divine and your heart, but to live in a mode of joy. You might think that you are some verbrochener dude in the shtetl with your turnips and your cow, and your 18 kids you have to marry off, 
but you have to realize how phenomenal it is to be a Jew in the world and to have that spiritual potential and it doesn't matter if you're living in the finest palace or in the crappiest cardboard box God is all around you wherever you go so the circumstances you find yourself in are just particularly for you and your potential that brings you a great joy because it is in that particular circumstance made for you that you can find the Creator and that you can outpour your own divine potential with others as well. We're going to talk about that subsequently. So these three things, the concept of Dvekut, the concept, the prioritization of prayer as a mode of spiritual discourse. It wasn't like the Hasidim didn't learn and it wasn't like the non-Hasidim didn't pray. But for example, one of the great Hasidic, uh, second, third generation Hasidic leaders that I'll talk about in a moment, Shnezalman of Liadi, who went on to form the Chabad movement, one of the great genius Iluyim of the 20th century. And when he got to about the age of 20, not the 20th century, the 18th century, when he got to about the age of 20, he had to make a decision. Either he was going to go to Vilna to learn with Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, the greatest rabbinic mind in Europe, or he was going to go to Mizrich to learn with the student of the Baal Shem Tov. And he said, I already know how to learn, but no one has told me how to pray. This prayer over learning is a huge reshifting of spiritual discourse. It meant that ordinary Jews, even without learning, could partake in what Jewish spirituality has to, spirituality has to offer in prayer and in connection with the divine, which is huge. And the third, as we said, is the concept of joy. Now, <coughs> I want to talk just briefly uh, go back to a little bit of history because uh, that, that explains in a broad sketch what the <coughs> would have still become huge spiritual sages in their own right. There is a group around the Baal Shem Tov. When the Baal Shem Tov dies in 1760, this movement, which hasn't really, hasn't really extended by this stage too much beyond Moldavia and some of those parts near where or Podolia, near where the Baal Shem Tov was based, but is about to. There were certain candidates for the leadership of this group. But the candidate that came forward to assume the mantle of the Hasidic movement was actually a very, very different figure from the Baal Shem Tov. And was, of course, Dov Ber, the Magid of Mizrich. And the Magid of Mizrich whose books are available, you can read the Magid's works. It's an extremely, in many ways, intellectually radical thinker, but very different from the Baal Shem Tov. The Magid, of course, emphasized all of the things that we've put on the board so far, but he really brought a, brought a kind of intellectual systematization or not so much even systematization but an intellectual underpinning to a lot of these concepts it's also interesting because 
<coughs> you know, the Maggid would take Lurianic concepts and turn them into examples, parables that we can understand. Remember last week I spoke about the whole concept of Tzimtzum? Some of you would remember that with, with discomfort, yeah? <laughs> and the way that the infinite contracts into itself to create the void, to create the space for creation itself. The Maggid's understanding of Tzimtzum, interestingly enough, is the opposite direction. But in a way, an even higher level of explanation. Because the Maggid uses the example of the way that light has to be contracted and concealed in order to be revealed is his famous analogy that is used by later Hasidic leaders of the way in which an idea or a body of knowledge is transmitted from a teacher to a pupil. The teacher cannot reveal to the pupil everything about it because the pupil will simply not be able, the student will not be able to cope, will not be able to contain the information, has nothing by which to reference it or categorize it in any way. The teacher must therefore contract the knowledge so that everything that he, trans he or she transmits to the student contains the essence of what's being transmitted. It doesn't conflict with it, but it's, the full picture is only gradually revealed. This was the Magid's amazing mashal for not only the concept of Tzimtzum, but the concept of Hishtal Shalut, the concept of development of worlds and so on. So already he is dealing but with very, very deep mystical ideas, but giving them over in a way which underpins the th these kind of essential points. But by the time we get to the Maggid, which is kind of what we call second generation Hasidism, already around the Maggid there is a circle of difference. Hasidic masters in their own right who are developing their own approaches. Together with the Maggid around the Baal Shem Tov was Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, who was another candidate for the leadership, but he ended up actually writing the first Hasidic books. But the Maggid had around him an astonishing array of individuals, each of went on not only to become great in their own right, but many of whom formed entire dynasties of Hasidic leadership. We can only talk about three, I'm only going to mention three. Abelevi Yitzchak of Baditshu is famously known as the great defender of Israel, the great lover of Israel. His emphasis on the concept of Ahavat Yisrael is a direct outcome, a direct outcome of the combination between the idea of the imminence of the divine in everything and the fact that the sparks of the divine are embedded in that reality. Not just, when I say the sparks of the divine, the sparks of the essential infinite. Almost like the uniqueness of God, because everything is divine at a level, but within reality are sparks of infinite essence. And every single soul is a spark of infinite essence. And you only elevate souls through love. 
great, I mean, and, and that famous, you know that famous story about Levi Yitzchak probably the most famous story about him, that he's walking with his students. I'm going to talk about the concept of story in a moment, how important that is in the Hasidic world. But <laughs> he's going, you know, moving along with uh, his students, and they see a Jew who is uh, greasing his wagon wheel while he's praying, right? You know, he's busy, he's got his talus and tefillah while he's praying because he has to do the morning prayer, but he's also got to get out and schlep the turnips to market. So he's greasing his wagon wheel, and the Hasidim go, ah, what a shaka, right? Couldn't even take five minutes to pray. He's got to pray while he's, he's got to wag, wax his wagon wheel, grease his wagon wheel while he's doing it. Rabbi Yitzchak says, no, that's not what I see at all. I see a Jew greasing his wagon wheel who is so immersed in God that he's praying while he's doing it. This shift in perspective is very, very famous uh, in terms of Rabbi Yitzchak Badichev. So I'm writing his name on the board. We don't have time to go into it, but I'm mentioning him because those of you interested in, in, in the early Hasidic thought uh, and you can read a book like Kedushat Levi, which I'm not entirely sure has been translated, maybe it has, uh, is an astonishing uh, commentary on the Torah uh, according to these ideas. All right. Number two, and this is not in importance, this is simply because I'm listing three of the first few decades that go on to still affect the Jewish world today. You would have to talk about uh, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, or as otherwise known, the Alter Rebbe, uh, the first uh, Hasidic leader of Chabad, or the first leader of the Hasidic group that goes on to become known as Chabad and also known as the Bala Tanya after his famous work, the Tanya that I'm sure since we're all sitting here in a Chabad house, at some point we would have heard of and ideally at some point have read uh, the Tanya is a work that is uh, regarded as part of the universal canon of world spiritual literature. It is one of the great, great, great texts to have emerged from the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, Shnizaman of Liadi is born in 1745. Um, areas of uh, Lower Eastern Europe, he comes from Lithuania. And Lithuania, of course, was the core center of the anti-Hasidic movement and the big center of Talmudism and uh, a Judaism that wasn't going to suffer these kinds of radical cults. Because they had, they really, really, the Hasidim, the first few decades, they really set themselves apart. It wasn't they thought, oh, we've got these great ideas, let's run around and share them. They, they, they wanted that, but they set themselves up in their own particular unique cultural path. They changed their prayer services. They changed their mode of ritual slaughtering. They, pray, they created new shuls in which they prayed with each other. They changed some of their customs. They did a number of things that caused the big rabbis in Europe to get very, very suspicious and scared about what was happening. They didn't think this needed to be happening in Europe. And of course, it ended up being the greatest dispute in the Jewish community of Europe in the 18th century. It didn't just split communities, it split families. But Shnezalman of Liadi came from Lithuania. But he went and studied by the Magid and became the 
first generation leader of one of the most remarkable religious and spiritual movements in the world of the last couple of centuries, the whole concept of Chabad. Which, which, without leaving behind the essential existential messages of the Baal Shem Tov, nevertheless seeks to contain them within a meditative intellectual framework. At the end of the day, the intellectual faculties control the emotions and channel towards an understanding of the imminence of the divine in prayer as your essential service, but ultimately taking that out into the world to reveal divine in the world. The third, but, I, but you have to understand, that's not a summary of Chabad. Chabad is a Gasquillian books and papers and essays and discourses over the last couple of centuries. And the third would be Rabbi Nachman of Breslau. who in fact is not a student of the Maggid. He was in fact more a third, fourth generation Hasidic leader. He was a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tom himself, maternally. And Rabbi Nachman's idea, and the reason I'm choosing this is because really Chabad and Braslav are probably the two most dynamic and expanding Hasidic movements in the world today. Braslav has had a phenomenal revival in the last 30, 40 years. Phenomenal. And its cultural influence is seen everywhere. It combines. It's like a jigsaw piece that can combine with anything. You can combine it with Zionism. You can combine it with Chabad. You can, you can combine it with, uh, with, with. You can combine it with secular politics. You can combine it with anything, with contemporary psychology, whatever you want. And Rabbi Nachman's basic idea, which once again emerges from the imminence of the divine and your uniqueness in the world. And your concept of joy, your approach of joy, is basically to have an ongoing, constant conversation with God. Out loud, in words, talking to God and saying, God, you. To actually talk to God as though God is there, which ultimately God... If you talk, remember that we got crystallization of that idea in Buba. We talked about in philosophy the idea of Ichun Du, I and Thou, as a second person relationship with God. But Rav Nachman was very, very big on meditation through dialogue. Those of you who have seen the very, very wonderful and cute movie Wishbizim, right? So that couple is a Breslov couple. That's why in the middle of the film, in his crisis, he goes off into the forest and just starts talking to God. That's a very Breslov thing to do. These three individuals are only three, however, amongst a plethora of different Hasidic approaches and emphases. From the third and fourth generation onwards, we start to see the creation of dynasties as spiritual leadership was passed down, not necessarily to the most spiritual student, but to the next generation within the previous Rebbe's family. They actually became dynasties. By now, some of these dynasties, you know, have got their hands on different real estate and other assets. It's not so simple just to open the whole thing up. That's a very cynical way of looking at it. You could also argue that these 
sages were so great and righteous that they just kept on having children generation after generation that were amazing. In some cases, that was the case. If you look at Chabad, for example, uh, the seventh and most famous Rebbe of Chabad, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, passed away in 1994, and he was the seventh generation. And every single Chabad Rebbe of every generation was phenomenal in their own right. But that's kind of unique. We see greatness coming in and out of most Hasidic dynasties. <coughs> and the reason Hasidism became conservative and uh, small c conservative, not big conservative, and ultra-Orthodox has got not so much to do with anything that was happening inside Hasidic thought itself, <clears throat> but of course as a reaction to another big tsunami that was coming into Jewish culture at the end of the 18th and particularly throughout the 19th century called the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, modernism, the idea of secularity, the idea of a more cultural Judaism that pursued intellectual and cultural goals that were outside Judaism. In response to that, both the Hasidic world and the non-Hasidic world in Europe, which weren't really talking to each other till the middle of the 19th century, had to close ranks and created this thing that we now call orthodoxy. Remember that orthodoxy is not a movement that existed in the Jewish world. Like when I, when I look at books that talk about 18th and 17th century figures as orthodox rabbis, it's ridiculous. Orthodoxy came after reform. Orthodoxy is a reaction to reform. But really, That is the reason why Hasidim and Mitnagdim can sit on the bus together today in Haranoff. Because, and that gives rise to what we now call the Haredi world, which comprises all those camps, because they're reacting to modernism. I'm going to finish by just naming, I just want to name five or six concepts that you will come across in relation to understanding Hasidism and what the essence of Hasidic transformation is. And, uh, uh, just give me a couple of minutes because I want to talk about that because it's, uh, you'll, it, it's important to mention it because although I gave three here, there are some others that if I didn't talk about them would not, would not be, uh, would, uh, it would be incomplete. It's important to understand that a lot of Hasidic literature uses the concepts and terminology of Lurianic Kabbalah and Zoharic Kabbalah but in a very unique way. It adapts them to the essential shift in consciousness that it wants individual Jews to make about their place in the world and the imminence of God and joy. The concept of two Kabbalistic concepts that are particularly important in that regard is one is the redemption of sparks, as I spoke about, but the other also is the concept of the exile of the soul. This is a big idea that is mentioned in earlier Kabbalistic books, but is really brought out by the Hasidic world 
who wanted their adherents to understand that their reality in this world is a reflection of a cosmic reality. You are in exile in this world the way you're, as, in order to help you understand how your soul is in exile in the body and yearns to return to its source. The other, um, another concept is the concept of Ahavat Israel, the concept of love of one's fellow Jew. Now, in an ideal sense, we would want to say, oh, love of another human being. But that's not really the reality they were living in. There's no point having any relationship with the divine unless you love all of Israel because God loves Israel. That level of ahava, that level of love for one other, another person is foundational. In this, in this, they are echoing the great voices of the Nevi'im, of the prophets of Israel on the one hand, who grounded interpersonal relations as a prerequisite for any relationship with the divine, and of course the sages of the Mishnah, another great clear expression of Jewish spiritual principles along those lines. Now, two of the outcomes of this idea of total imminence and total divine providence that when literally consciously at every moment of your waking consciousness you are aware that God is everywhere and an outcome of this are the concepts of emunah and bitachon can't go into them in too much detail emunah which is very very unfortunately and loosely translated as the concept of faith but faith is not something like a person who says, oh, I've read a book, I believe there's a God. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Emunah, even beyond words or any kind of logical description of it, these are way beyond human rationality, is innate to every human being. It is not something you acquire from rational thinking or from a book or by being told about it. It can be inspired, it can be lit, it can be kindled, but it is inherent in you. Everybody is born with a level of emunah, a level of faith. And the corollary of emunah is the concept of bitachon, of trust. Confidence, trust. Today bitachon means security, but in the Hasidic paradigm, bitachon is trusting in God. I'm in this situation because that's the reality. I mean, it's all a divine reality. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to jump off a cliff and trust. I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to trust that God and my relationship with God will reveal to me why this is happening. And to draw strength from that. Emunah and bitachon go hand in hand. But they are fundamental to the whole emphasis placed in Hasidic consciousness. I need to, I was going to spend one second on the importance and the role. Now this is a difficult one because it's not everyone's cup of tea, I have to tell you. So far everything I've talked about most people can sign on. 
but this is not all so simple. The Hasidic movement has become characterized by a very, very centralized form of leadership in the notion of the tzaddik, the righteous person. Not just righteous by description, but righteous by title and by status. <laughs> Each sect within the Hasidic world coalesces around a particular leader who is the Rebbe, who is the Tzaddik, and the Hasidim, because this is really what's become, and one of the meanings of the word Hasidim is someone who is a follower, yeah? The Hasidim follow. It's not a model for leadership. The leadership is passed down by whoever the leader passes it down to. You don't, it's not a meritocracy over here. You're a Hasid. I mean, maybe the only way out of that paradigm is to become so great and holy yourself, you go off and start your own Hasidic movement and you can become the leader. Now, that is cosmically justified in much of the early Hasidic writings. If you read books like Noam Elimelech or Avodat Yisrael, some of the first, uh, second, third generation works, say contemporary with the Tanya, the whole idea of the tzaddik, the whole idea of the righteous person is at the, is at the center of their entire worldview. In a good day, we might read that by saying that everybody has the potential to become that, but I don't think it's what they're talking about. They're actually talking about that model. Of course, the tzaddik is a miracle worker and so on. So it has contributed to some Hasidic sects in some times taking on a kind of a cultic flavor. Yep. But that's the reality of the Hasidic world. That's, that's not a reality that's foreign to Judaism, by the way, of course. I mean, it was the reality in the Torah. You've got Moses, right? And you know what happens if you challenge Moses. Yeah? So, but nevertheless, it's an interesting aspect of the Hasidic world. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, because the, the, the giving over uh, to, the, to the Rebbe or the leader of just about everything. Uh, and it's almost seeing the Rebbe as a conduit or a mediation in your spiritual journey to the divine is very problematic for some people. Even scholars and theologians of Judaism find that difficult. <coughs> it would be remiss if we did not very, very briefly mention the role of two important human activities, basic human activities that became transformed within Jewish spirituality by the Hasidic movement. One is the notion of story. Many, many, many Hasidic messages are delivered in parables. Thousands upon thousands of stories about the Baal Shem Tov alone, let alone the Gusquillian stories about all of the different spiritual leaders of the Hasidic movement over the past couple of centuries, it's infinite number of stories. And Hasidim are fond of telling these stories, not only to recount the greatness of their leaders, but also because often they embody a moral message as well. My favorite story about the Baal Shem Tov of the thousands is the famous one about where he comes to a town, and he walks in, uh, well, some small, small village, and he walks into the shul, probably came in from the next town, he's wandering around from the field, comes into the shul, and he, the people have finished praying, <coughs> but there's one guy in the synagogue who's standing there with his siddur, and he's crying because he's 
he's confused and he doesn't know where it is. And he goes, Bhagavan goes, what's your problem? He goes, well, everybody's already prayed and they've all left, but I can't follow the service. I don't know where everything is and I'm confused and I really want to pray. I'm standing here with my siddur, but I don't know what's going on. So the Bhagavan takes time. He sits down with him. He creates, he shows him the order of the siddur, the order of the prayer book, and he puts bits of paper in, in the various parts so that the guy will remember because he's going to write bits of paper and put them in there where he shows him all the different things. And he wishes him well, and the Baal Shem Tov leaves. And the guy is so excited that he can now pray, he can now understand the Siddur. The Baal Shem Tov is explaining to him that he stands up very quickly, and all the pieces of paper and notes of the Baal Shem Tov have written it all fall out on the floor. But the Baal Shem Tov only left a few minutes ago, so he grabs his Siddur, and he runs out to look for him. He sees him at the end of the field, so he starts running after him. Meanwhile, the Baal Shem Tov is in the next field, he keeps running after him. Baal Shem Tov comes to a forest. He's, following, he's still sitting, he's following him through the forest. The Baal Shem Tov comes to a river. He sees it, this is because it's about you know, half a kilometer in front of him. He sees him come to a river. The Baal Shem Tov uh, takes off his coat, puts it on the river, and walks across the river, picks up his coat. Right? The, 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 the coat just stopped the river and, and gets to the other side. So the guy runs up, takes off his coat, puts it on the river, the river splits, he, he grabs his coat, he runs up. Finally, he catches up to the Baal Shem Tov. <coughs> and he says, and the Baal Shem looks around and goes, you, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, oh, you know those pieces of paper, they all fell out of my siddur. <laughs> so the Baal Shem Tov says, did you follow me all this way? He goes, yeah. He goes, did you cross that river as well? And he goes, yeah, I just did what you did. I put my coat down and I walked across the river. And he goes, you don't need the pieces of paper, you're doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasizing that this basic concept of emunah, this basic concept of bitachon, is what really is the emphasis in the Hasidic movement. So that even though prayer is prioritized over study, we're not going to isolate prayer as an object either. It comes from a whole existential projection into the world. And also the importance of the concept of nigun, of tunes, of music, of song. Now nigun was not simply used to sing, in a joyous way, you know, I mean, basically, if you think about it in terms of music, the Hasidic world went from, you know, the Jewish world pre and post Hasidism basically went from to that transition happens in the 18th century. The Hasidic movement brings joy and it uses music not only to pray but to meditate with and also to dance with. Yep. Remember Nietzsche's famous comment, I would believe in a God who could dance? The Hasidim brought dance. I mean, not that dance did not exist, but an entire infusion of joy and simcha into, that, into the very fundamental concepts of music and dance. And one last thing, and I'm going to finish on this point, one last thing, and it's worth saying, because it kind of takes us back to the beginning. The Hasidim... No, it does. <laughs> Why is she laughing? All right. The Hasidim of the 18th century are not the first Hasidim in Jewish history. The term is used at various points to describe movements that are going beyond just observing Jewish law. You can be very, very, very orthodox and very, very, very observant, but you're not doing anything more beyond what it says you need to do. 
the Hasidic movement in the times of the Talmud, which we don't really know their consciousness. We just know they were called the Hasidim. They were Hasidic, called the Hasidah Ashkenaz in 12th, 13th century Germany. That was a very pietistic movement of repentance. We're not entirely sure. We know a bit more about their set of consciousness. But it wasn't necessarily the same as the Hasidim. The reason the Hasidim got the name Hasidim is because they took upon themselves, and perhaps they did this deliberately because they were sharing a radical philosophy, they took upon themselves a greater and more stringent observance of many of the ritual laws of Judaism. So their piousness, piousness became a very, very important part of the Hasidic world. That's why all of the many chumras and many of the stringencies, the Jewish law that you see, and you look at it again and you say, who does that? Well, the Hasidim do that. Who, does, who, who doesn't eat gebrochts on Pesach? The Hasidim. Who only drinks chal of Yisrael? The Hasidim. Who doesn't use the Arab? The Hasidim. Who, in other words, not derogatory, but in a very, very laudatory way, they took upon themselves customs to be pious, to identify themselves as that group, as, but it's really, its origins are in a tremendously transformative approach to Jewish spirituality that I don't need to expand on because already from the points that we've made this evening, you yourself would be able to see and be able to work out and be able to absorb and process as to just how far that has been taken in the Jewish world completely. So thank you for listening to that. Find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.